It's Wednesday the 25th of May 2022 and from day three of the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland, this is Radio Davos. More than two and a half thousand leaders from government, business, civil society, academia and the media are meeting in person for the first time since COVID-19 stopped the world. They're discussing the biggest issues from geopolitics to climate change, inequality, technology, the future of jobs, all as history is at a turning point. Watch all the action live or on catch up at wef.ch slash wef22 and across social media using the hashtag wef22. I'm Robin Pomeroy, podcast editor at the World Economic Forum, and with daily podcasts from the annual meeting 2022, this is Radio Davos. Welcome to Davos on day three, and welcome to my co-host today, Shireen Barn, managing editor of India's leading business news channel, CNBC TV 18. Hi, Shireen, how are you? Hi, Robin, I'm well. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for making time. You're just telling me how busy you are over these days. Tell me what it is you're doing here. Well, you know, we've been covering Davos for almost uh, two decades on CNBC TV 18, of course, for the Indian audience. But the idea really is to be here and talk to global leaders, business leaders, government leaders to get a sense of uh, what the world looks like. And it's it's increasingly uh, volatile and turbulent at this point in time, as you know, uh, on account of the various uh, factors, whether it's Russia, Ukraine or what's happening in China. We've just gone through the pandemic. So, you know, the recovery from the pandemic is still top of mind. And then you've been hit with all of these shocks. So we're really trying to piece together uh, what the world is going to look like in a post-COVID world with all the geopolitical changes that are happening, what that's going to mean in terms of supply chain disruptions, what it would mean for an economy like India. Uh, So that's really the focus. It's long days, uh, uh, you know, 4 a.m. starts, which go on pretty much till midnight. Um, I'm conflicted, though. I I can't decide whether I prefer Davos in the winter or in the summer. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been hard to get your reference, right? Because you're so used to seeing it snow covered, but uh, but I'm enjoying it so far. Now we're in day three. People are starting to almost forget this massive difference of it being springtime. Maybe I'm talking for myself here, but I've only been to one Davos before. It was mm. snow covered. But now the things you've just mentioned, these are huge, huge changes that have happened in the world and that are happening right now. I think now discussions are underway. Um, you know, we're getting to the heart of the matter rather than talking about the weather so much, yes. as I think people were at the, at the start of the week. So are there any things that have struck you either from if you've had time to watch any panel discussions or from any of the interviews you've done that, that really have leapt out at you so far? So I think, you know, uh, above and beyond the the themes that have dominated conversations in Davos over the last few years, whether it's climate, I think one issue that really stood out for me this time around, and literally everyone that I spoke to is talking about it, is food security. And I think that's linked to the fact that we've seen food prices escalate. Food inflation is a problem. It's a global challenge today and exacerbated on account of the Russia-Ukraine war. And so the focus of, you know, government leaders, business leaders on what's happening with food, I don't think it was ever a top of mind conversation here in Davos. So that's certainly uh, something that... um, Uh, that I've seen a lot more of this time around. And it's also interesting, you know, we've just come off uh, a a very difficult two and a half years on account of the COVID-19 pandemic. But 
I think that has somewhat receded or at least is occupying less mind space, the pandemic and the pandemic related challenges and just the, 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 the devastation that the pandemic caused. I would have imagined that that would have been much more of an issue or a focus, but I think that's sort of gotten overshadowed by more current challenges uh, that we're faced with. So I would say, yeah, those are some of the interesting things that, that I've noticed so far in the conversations, but the mood is tentative. Um, and, you know, everyone's trying to figure out what uh, what this war is going to mean. Is it going to be a long-run protracted war uh, and the implications of that? So I think the mood is somewhat tentative at this point in time. I'm glad you've raised the COVID one because one of the sessions that I noticed that was very interesting was one actually from day one called Equitable Responses to Ending the Pandemic. Mm. And listeners to this can watch that on Catch Up on our website. Um, and I'd like to play you some clips from it and maybe we can just see, you know, your view and the view from India on the pandemic at the moment. This is Gabriela Boucher, head of Oxfam International. And she says, the rich world seems to think the pandemic is over. The rich world in particular moves on and feels, you know, it's over for us. We're all vaccinated. It's no longer a problem. And we are forgetting about what's happening across the, the world, the global south, which is still having waves of the, of the virus and, and the low rates of vaccination, 15% across Africa at the moment. So that the focus moves away and, and that that is not addressed. Um, and, you know, the fact that we don't have, it's not a public good, it, uh, it's not a readily available vaccine globally uh, um, at the scale needed, means that uh, in six months, we, you know, the complacency that is perhaps felt now could be really deadly. Gabriela Boucher, head of Oxfam there, saying the ritual seems to think this is over. Maybe they'll look to Davos and say, people are meeting here. They, although actually there is a lot of COVID precautions going on. How's it seen from India? Is the pandemic seen as over there? Well, I wouldn't say that the pandemic is seen as over, but I think, uh, you know, whether it is restrictions uh, that the, the government had imposed uh, on the movement of people, on various uh, sectors like tourism, etc., on international travel, those restrictions have been lifted. So it's back to what it was uh, pre-pandemic. And I think, you know, uh, in keeping with human resilience, uh, everyone just wants to now sort of get on with it because it's been such a challenging two and a half years and you just want to move on. And we We've got a fairly high vaccination rate uh, uh, in India. In fact, um, the Indian supplier of vaccines, we have a bunch of them, but the majority of the vaccinations have come from a company, from a vaccine maker called Serum, which has uh, produced the vaccine in association with AstraZeneca. Um, and, you know, to, to the point about vaccine equity, and it is a challenge, but Here's the situation today, and I go back to the conversation that I had with the CEO of Serum Institute, which uh, has developed uh, with AstraZeneca the COVID-19 vaccine that majority Indians have uh, taken, and they're, of course, supplying it to the world as well. He says that they're sitting on 200 million unused doses that there are no takers for. So, you know, while there are supplying to the WHO COVAX facility, et cetera, but there are no orders, there are no export orders that are coming in. So that's the odd question. So it's no longer a lack of vaccine or a vaccine supply issue. It seems to be that there are no orders coming in and suddenly demand is dropped, maybe because people believe that the worst is behind us uh, uh, and there is a sense of complacency. But this 
the ch current challenge is not one of supply, but one of demand, uh, you know, which is so interesting because it was completely the opposite uh, when the vaccines rolled out, where you just didn't have enough to go around. And that's where the argument that the rich were really hoarding the vaccines, providing boosters and so on and so forth, when large parts of the world didn't have access to even the first shot. But today, uh, it's, it's a different problem where their vaccines are available, but there suddenly seem to be not enough takers. Yeah, well, speaking of that same session was the chief executive of an, another vaccine manufacturer, Moderna, uh, Stéphane Boncel, and he said exactly the same thing, that they've seen this surprising reduction in demand, mm -hmm. despite the fact that even in the USA, people are not taking up booster mm -hmm. doses. And obviously there's vaccine skepticism, but potentially he was saying, it's also just what you said, right, maybe it's over now. Still a lot of people not vaccinated, in the South, but also in the North. We should not forget that in the US, uh, despite having great technology for a long time, we have only half of people who get vaccinated got boosted with third dose, half. Uh, so I worry about next fall and winter as the antibody le level goes down. Like Jeremy, I worry a lot about China because I think as the virus becomes more and more infectious, it's less and less controllable. With techniques that were wonderful in 2020 to prevent a lot of deaths. And then as Seth said, uh, we need to always be humble with biology, which I worry we might have down the road and it might not be in the next six months, a more virulent variant. Because we should never forget the past, which is Delta came after Alpha, but was more virulent. And so while Omicron was good news, uh, was less virulent than Delta, we are always a day away or a week away or a month away or a quarter away from a new one that's pretty bad in terms of virulence. Stefan Bancel, the CEO of Moderna, in the spirit of Radio Davos on, and in the spirit of the World Economic Forum, which is looking to solutions to big problems, this is Jeremy Farrar, who is the director of the Wellcome Trust, the health research organization. And he was saying that we need to diversify vaccine manufacture. India, which you'll hear in this clip, he congratulates for doing so well in creating these manufacturing mm -hmm. um, plants. But other parts of the world need to get that as well. I would keep a plural approach, first thing. Second thing is it's not just rich countries where the vaccine manufacturing is, it's large population countries where the vaccine manufacturing is. If we leave it in those countries, and India deserves enormous credit for its manufacturing, but if we leave it in countries with hundreds of millions of people and you have another pandemic, they will have to look after their own citizens first. So you've heard it at Davos first, I would set up a global network of small population countries, Singapore, Costa Rica, Rwanda, Senegal, you could have it in competition, funded centrally, intellectual property protection, manufacturing quality, expertise, regulatory alignment, everything you need in order to be producing vaccines we need today and tomorrow, but be there to manufacture for their own populations and be exporting within a week or two. I think if we don't set something like that up and we leave it in US, China, India, etc., then we will have the same problems of nationalism in a decade from now when we have another pandemic. That was Jeremy Farrar, director of the Wellcome Trust. You can listen to all of that session called Equitable Responses to Ending the Pandemic on the website. Another big topic of discussion is uh, climate change from India. How are you seeing climate change at the moment? Everyone's seen these heat waves there mm -hmm. and also floods there in the subcontinent. I think people are talking about it more. I think there is a realization that this is a real threat. You know, I've come from Delhi, which uh, recorded a maximum temperature of 49 degrees centigrade just a few days ago. How did that feel? Uh, it was hot, okay. <laughs> to, say, to say the least. Right. Uh, but, you know, and 
a couple of days later, you have thunderstorms that are disrupting flights, uh, you know, for, for 48 hours plus. Uh, in the southern parts of India, you had torrential rainfall. In the northeast, you have floods. So this is a real risk. And it's now. It's not in the future. It's happening now. Uh, you know, we're an economy that's so dependent on agriculture as a growth driver, as an employment generator. And so this is important for us to be able to, uh, you know, grapple with this uh, in a very serious and urgent way, uh, because this is going to impact lives and livelihoods. So I think it's a very real issue. Um, I think the government and the private sector, uh, industry included, are looking at ways of being able to try and mitigate the risk. But I think there is also the, the realization that, look, India cannot transition away from coal anytime soon. And we saw that um, assertion being made at COP26 as well, because that is our current reality. Uh, there is a transition plan to move towards uh, clean energy, green energy, um, you know, whether it's um, solar power, wind, uh, and uh, now the government has just put in place a new green hydrogen policy and things like that, the move towards electric mobility. Those are changes that are work in progress. It's not going to be something that's going to move the needle significantly in the next year or two or even the next five years. Uh, but I think we need to start taking very concerted action. And we need to uh, realize the fact and acknowledge the fact that this is not a future threat or a future danger. Uh, this is impacting lives as of today. And you think the corporate sector in India is, is taking that seriously? Yes, I think the corporate sector in India is taking it seriously. And I also think uh, that because of the new uh, uh, ESG metrics, I think because, uh, you know, shareholders are now asking questions, investors are asking questions. I think companies are putting their own targets in place in, in terms of net zero obligations and so on and so forth. Uh, so I think it is a real conversation. I think it's an active conversation, but it's also an ongoing conversation. The theme of this Davos is history at a turning point. Does it feel in India that history is at a turning point? I don't know if... Um, if the feeling would be that history is at a turning point, I certainly think the feeling is that this is a big inflection point. And it's not just because of the rebalancing that's likely to happen in Europe uh, because of uh, what's going on between Russia and Ukraine. But there are other geopolitical frictions that are being watched closely. Of course, what's happening in China is being watched very closely. I think the move towards China uh, becoming more protectionist, the move towards China putting in place more stringent regulations, even as as far as its own domestic industry is concerned. I think that is being watched by the world closely, including, of course, by, uh, by India. Uh, what this means in terms of global supply chains and decisions to de-risk global supply chains, because, you know, for a very long period of time, many have placed all their bets and all their eggs in one basket. And is that going to change dramatically? And if yes, what does that mean for the rest of the world, including for a country like ours? I think that's a conversation that is being had. That's uh, something that people are focusing on. Our neighborhood is, um, you know, has, has its own challenges. Sri Lanka is going through a crisis at this point in time. We've just seen political instability in Pakistan and a change uh, uh, in leadership there as well, a change in government there as well. So I think there are there are many, uh, you know, areas from an Indian perspective. Of course, Russia and Ukraine and what's happening in Europe, that's just one of them. But our neighborhood also provides uh, ample food for thought at this point in time. It certainly does. Well, let's hear from Ursula von der Leyen, then the president of the European Commission, who's answering in her own way a question I've been considering. 
will the geopolitical situation speed up or slow down the energy transition? This is what she had to say. Russia has tried to put pressure on us. For example, by cutting the energy supplies, the gas supplies of Bulgaria, Poland, and now lately Finland. But this war and this behavior we see has only strengthened Europe's resolve to get rid of Russian fossil fuel dependency rapidly. The climate cannot wait, but now the geopolitical reasons are evident too. We have to diversify away from fossil fuels. We have set our course already towards climate neutrality, so now we must accelerate our clean energy transition. Ursula von der Leyen of the European Commission. So, Shireen, lots of problems, they're sometimes called challenges, uh, being discussed here in Davos. Are you seeing any solutions anywhere? You know, I would like to think that there are solutions. And, you know, I think the problems do present opportunities uh, for innovators, for entrepreneurs. Uh, I've been doing the Social Entrepreneur Program with the Schwab Foundation in India for over a decade now. And that gives me hope uh, because these are men and women who are not dependent on government subsidies. They're not dependent on, um, you know, any particular government scheme, etc. They've decided that whether it's healthcare or it's education or it's sanitation or it's water conservation, they're going out there and building solutions. And they're going out there and building viable solutions that can be taken to scale. Uh, and I, I truly believe that that is going to have to be our approach. We can't wait for the government to, uh, you know, to get its uh, hands around dealing with all of these challenges. We need you know, we need all stakeholders to deliver solutions, uh, put solutions on the table. And I think I'm seeing plenty of innovation. Um, and, and that gives me the confidence and the hope that uh, we, with the right environment, with the right facilitation, and of course, there is no dearth of capital today. I mean, there's enough capital uh, in the world. Uh, people are sitting on a lot of dry powder at this point in time to, to fund businesses that make sense. And I think if we can actually scale some of these interesting solutions, these interesting tools, that are being uh, created and being experimented with in different parts of the world. I certainly see a lot of that happening uh, in India. Uh, I think we'll, we'll be in a better place. Well, on that upbeat note then, Shireen Barn, Managing Editor at CNBC TV 18 in India. Thanks so much for joining us on Radio Davos. Thank you very much, Robin. Uh, thanks for having me and I hope you have a good Davos. Thank you, you too. It's Mirik Dusek joining me now on Radio Davos. He's the head of Europe at the World Economic Forum. Mirik, how are you? Very good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Now tell us, what is the thing you'll be announcing today? We're glad to announce today a new manifesto from CEOs on the European Green Deal, the um, European Union's ambition for net zero by 2050. But this manifesto is responding to the new geopolitical context. Uh, the war in Ukraine has uh, disrupted peace in Europe, but we should not let that derail the commitment in Europe to the net zero transition. So what we're doing is we have this group of CEOs, over 50 CEOs of major companies in Europe and elsewhere. And that's the CEO Action Group. Is what, that's what it that's is the CEO Action Group for the European Green Deal. They have been together for two years, but now they're stepping up to this new uh, geopolitical context. And they're saying to pol policymakers and 
the public at large that they see this movement as pivotal to double down on the net zero transition and that uh, they are in full support to drive and step up for the public-private cooperation because that's what's needed in terms of the implementation. Am I right in thinking this group has already made a pledge? It's kind of set out what it's promising to do even before today. It has, but the context has changed. And so as uh, some uh, think uh, the landscape is potentially uh, a little more complex for the net zero transition, uh, but as uh, many policymakers also, including Ursula von der Leyen and others, have said, uh, this is just a unique opportunity for Europe to double down and to really follow through um, on the net zero commitment. And of course, the energy transition is key here. But the other big thing we're going to be focusing on is the food systems area, because um, agriculture is about 10% of the overall carbon emission of the block, of the European Union block. And there are all kinds of things we can do to uh, make it less. And it's also important for the food security of Europe and the world, because uh, Europe is a net exporter of food, but we do have soil degradation in Europe. And so how do we make sure that we have the technologies and practices in agriculture that are actually going to be improving the soil quality and productivity so that then Europe can uh, export even more to those in need uh, in the world? The aim of this group is it supports a 55% emissions reduction by 2030. What we've been doing over the past two years is really looking at um, specific areas where public-private cooperation can make a dent, can make a difference. We've been looking at agriculture, uh, architecture, and, and buildings. So we will continue to do that. Um, but what was important here is that we are recognizing the complexity of the current situation, recommitting to this 55% uh, emission reduction by 2030, which is a goal of the European Commission in its uh, FIT 455, and then we are, of course, also inviting other private sector leaders to join this group. This, this group has been growing um, uh, quite healthily over the past two years, as I said, over 50 CEOs, and we hope to grow this group further. Now, there are these two sectors I mentioned, the food sector and the energy transition, if you will. They're going to be focusing on certain enablers. So we're going to be looking a lot at innovation. Another enabler is uh, sustainability standards. The third one is skills. Um, so um, job markets, how do we transition and do not leave people behind in this green transition? And then financing, how do we make sure we're even further mainstreaming financing into sustainable projects in Europe. People listening to this will be able to, later today, they'll be able to find this manifesto on implementing the European Green Deal in the new global context. That's something that will be up on a website. People can read this, right? We will be launching it later today. We will have a session uh, with the CEOs. They'll be meeting um, Executive Vice President Timmermans from the European Commission, uh, the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte, and also President of the ECB, Christine Lagarde, among other policymakers, where they will be presenting it to them first, and then we'll have some public information campaign around that also. Mirek Dusek, thanks for talking us through that. Thank you. 
There's another announcement from companies on climate change. It's about the First Movers Coalition. To talk about that, here's the forum's head of climate change, Antonia Gavel. Hi, Antonia. Tell us, what is this thing called the First Movers Coalition? So the First Movers Coalition is what I would call kind of a key initiative in the suite of activities that we're driving at the World Economic Forum to help advance progress on climate change. Um, the First Movers Coalition specifically is focusing on creating a demand signal to help pull technologies that we know we need in order to decarbonize heavy industry by 2030 by really using the purchasing signals from, from big businesses. I remember this being announced because we did a whole Radio Davos episode, which our listeners can go back to and listen to at COP26 in Glasgow when this was announced first. And as I understand it, this is a way um, of, of driving innovation, of driving investment into industries which emit a lot of greenhouse gas. There can be ways to reduce their emission. Maybe you can talk about the types of industries we're talking about, and then maybe some of the technologies. But to get to those technologies, there needs to be the investment. And I think that's the part of the puzzle you're providing here. Is, is that right? Yeah, exactly. So, so if you break it down, there's about 30% of emissions that come from what we call difficult to abate sectors. So basically industrial sectors, things like steel, um, aviation, things like aluminum, uh, heavy transport, trucking, shipping. So these are industries, about a third of emissions globally, that need to decarbonize for us to be able to kind of keep um, climate change within, within what science tells us we need to do. The question is, how do you decarbonize them? Um, and how do you create the right incentives to actually drive that decarbonization? And, and what the First Movers Coalition is exactly doing is to say, look, there has been really thorough work done to tell us what technologies we actually need by 2030 in order to decarbonize things like shipping, right? So in shipping, we know we need to start building um, net zero fuels, right? Things like ammonia in order to help kind of bring solutions into that sector. In, the, in trucking, we know we need um, to really scale up and expand electric uh, trucks in order to help decarbonize that sector. So we, we know we know we have the pathways for the types of solutions we need. The challenge that we face today is that many of these solutions remain nascent. Uh, so the IEA estimated that about half of the emission technologies that we need to decarbonize by 2050 are in pilot phase. So this is where we really need to drive investments today so that these technologies will be ready to play the role we know we need them to play by 2030 in order to get us on the right path. On one hand, we have a lot of solutions now. We have amazing solutions that are cost competitive. Things like solar, wind are, are out-competing actually fossil technologies in many markets. We need to completely scale up deployment of those things today. So this is this is absolutely critical. We're driving these types of efforts with things like our CO climate leaders. But if we forget about the investments uh, now that we know will take time to mature, then we're going to be in trouble uh, five, ten years from now. So that's where we're trying to really push that uh, that that investment and that innovation today, so that we don't get caught off guard in in five to ten years, where we suddenly say, oh, we don't have these solutions yet, but we know we need them. And so you're getting companies that need to ship or need to make steel, and you're and those are coming to say we will pursue these technologies. Is that what they're doing? Exactly. So you take a company like Amazon, who is one of our, our founding members. Amazon um, has committed that for a portion of the goods that they ship, they will use um, a specific type of fuel in the shipments that they that they make, which sends a signal to then the customers on one hand, but also actually the fuel 
producers to say, look, there are buyers for this particular solution to instigate investments uh, in those types of solutions today. And if you can stack up those commitments, then suddenly you're creating a really strong and powerful market signal. Uh, in a way, you're breaking this kind of chicken and egg cycle, aren't you? This, there's a company that could produce kind of climate friendly solutions on things. But if there's no one prepared to actually buy them, they're not going to scale that up. And in a way, if you're creating a market for you know you will be able to sell these types of technologies or these types of fuel or these types of steel that have been made through these types of technologies. If you know there's a market there, then you're going to invest huge amounts of money, I imagine, that it will require to create that production. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the chicken and egg is exactly what we're trying to, to, to break, right? So on one hand, we know what these solutions are. They are very nascent in their, their kind of, you know, level of, of commercialization. They are more expensive today. Uh, so on one hand, you say, look, we're, you know, how do we drive investment in, into these types of solutions? You need kind of two things. One is the market, on one hand, signaling that, yes, we are ready to buy uh, what you produce, so but the offtake. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there is equally the need to start to put in place policies that actually begin to send the right policy signals that the prices for these types of solutions are driven down. So what we're doing is really creating that market signal to say, look, there is a market. Companies have set their own net zero targets kind of at, at a global level. In order for them to actually achieve those targets, they'll need these types of technologies. And so it's exactly by sending that signal that on one hand, the investment can go in, into, you know, into these technologies, but also actually that the companies that themselves have set targets will be able to meet them going uh, down the road as well. So it's a combination of meeting their own commitments, walking the talk, um, as well as actually trying to flow investment where we know it needs to go, where there is very much a green premium, as they call it today. There is a cost differential. Uh, at the moment. So we want to try to bring that down by flowing um, more more kind of commitments into the market. So what's happening today then, there is a press conference that people will be able to watch live online and they'll be able to look back at it as well if people are listening to this after Davos has happened. What kind of thing can we expect to happen there today? So, I mean, the, the First Movers Coalition officially launched at COP26. You know, this is a, a collaboration between the World Economic Forum and, and the U.S. Um, government, in particular, Secretary Kerry's office, the special, special presidential envoy on climate. At COP26, we launched four sectors. So we created commitments uh, for shipping, for trucking, for steel, and for aviation. And there we launched with 34 founding members of the initiative, all of whom took a commitment um, against uh, these, these specific sectors that we launched there. What we've done since then is is a couple things, and this is what we'll be we'll be announcing. Um, on one hand, expand the companies, grow the market signal. Uh, so we'll be announcing a number of new companies who have joined the alliance to take commitments. The second is government. So what we know is that in order to help really speed up the, the scale of deployment of these solutions. Yes, we need market signals, we need investment, but we also will need eventually policy as well as bringing more global businesses into this type of initiative. So additional governments on board, 
across different regions um, is critical. And, and the third is additional sectors. So we started with four, we said we would do eight. So we're looking forward to kind of progressing our expansion of the FMC. So for us, this is incredibly exciting. I think we are getting incredible interest from companies really seeing the necessity of this kind of initiative, but also indeed putting true investments into the solutions, which is ultimately what we need. We saw incredible announcements at COP. We saw really really a convergence of the public sector, the private sector coming together to, to drive um, you know, collaborative efforts. Now what we really need to see is actually the, the, the true execution of these initiatives, really putting money into the solutions. And that's what we're really excited to see happening with FMC. And even since, um, since its launch at COP26, we see really true progress happening from a number of our companies who are already starting to kind of really deploy investments and, and you know, sign deals to actually help progress. People should tune into the press conference or get it on catch up. But for the moment, talking about the First Movers Coalition, thank you, Antonia Gavel. Thank you very much. One session you might be interested today at 1.15, there's one called Safeguarding the Future of the Internet. Cyber safety and cybersecurity are important areas for the World Economic Forum, which has its own centre for cybersecurity. That's headed by Alexander Klimberg, who you can hear interviewed on a podcast from KPMG called Back from 2040, in which host Ronnie Michael, KPMG's global head of innovation, sends her guests two decades into the future to report back on what life is like there. Here's Ronnie talking to Alex Klimberg about his experience of 2040. Can you tell us what the internet looks like in 2040 and how it's different from today in 2022? Well, thanks for asking, because it's a, it's a great place to be here in 2040. So here, cyberspace is a versatile, diverse domain. So just like all the other domains, airspace, land, we don't have just one thing. We don't have just one internet or one mountain. We have a number of different things and they all kind of coexist, providing diversity depending on the needs, like different geography. So like in transport, you know, we have the roads, we have the rails and we have the bike paths. So we still have ye old internet, the basic road whose combination of like centralization and decentralization has been pretty useful for a lot of things and that's still there. And now we also have the fancy bullet train, the metaverse that runs on its own tracks, but we also have the freewheeling bike lanes or what used to be called Web 3.0. So we have something for everyone, for every need, and instead of just one thing, and that's why this space is a great place to be in. Tell me a little bit about this area that you've dived into obviously a lot, which is cybercrime and crime also more generally. What does that look in 2040? Who are the criminals now? Do they have a name and face? And, and how is this different than the criminals and cyber criminals that we know today? Well, here in 2040, we have largely cracked the whole cybersecurity problem. And we cracked it by figuring out that we didn't actually have a technology problem. We had a political problem, a governance problem the entire time. So decades long, we were developing new technical fixes. We were developing our zero trust frameworks and a security by design. But it turned out that no matter how secure you thought your system was, somebody was always going to get in. And that effectively, the solution to all of this was not to concentrate only on the technology aspects, but also on the governance aspects. Alex Klimberg, head of the World Economic Forum's Center for Cybersecurity. You can hear that whole interview on the KPMG podcast back from 2040. He's also been on a recent edition of Radio Davos talking about cyber warfare. Look for that on our feed. And you can follow today's session at Davos on safeguarding the future of the internet at 1.15.
So I'm walking down the main thoroughfare of the annual meeting. It actually sounds remarkably quiet because everyone's gone into the room where I was standing outside to listen to the chief executive of YouTube. What I'm looking at here on video screens are, I believe there's 17 of them, gems moving around in, in space, if you like, kind of 3D renderings, different colors, they're shining, slightly spooky, kind of spacey feel to them. There's a purple one here. This one's multicolored, shining. And underneath them are pictures of, in some cases, well-known voices. Will I am, I'm seeing here. What they've done is they've recorded a message, a message of hope for the artist, who's then put it through his computer process and rendered a visual rendering of that voice saying that message. Let's go and talk to the artist, Harry Yev. Hi, Harry, how are you? It's a pleasure to be here. Can you talk us through one of these? Which shall we take? Uh, Jane Goodall. Let's take Jane Goodall. Do you want to describe what we're looking at here for people who are listening to this and can't actually see this? Yeah, so Jane Goodall sent a message of hope. She speaks about concepts of us being uh, maybe more clever than we are wise. And once we receive this recording about preservation, about conservation, we can use that and the specific data that's restored in all of our voices, almost like fingerprints. We can use that information via the, the generative system that my team and I designed to produce what is a world-class one-of-one digital asset. And that can exist on a screen. It can be three stories high on a building. And the information in all of our voices, there are tiny, stunning pieces of, of, of data and concept that we ignore often. We use that to generate color, and form. So almost imagine a sculptor in their studio producing um, a, a piece. We use technology to do that with the voice. And I focus primarily on voice generated design. There are many fascinating opportunities with that technique. We find that children's voices produce more vibrant gems. Individuals that have lower resonances have these like really stunning, reflective, deep tones. And it's a, it's, a pure representation of the vastness that is everyone's human voice. Every single voice on the planet is unique, almost like uh, this, um, uh, this stunning tool that exists within us that we can often ignore. And the system visualizes that in a, in a stunning way. Have you had any reaction from, from the people who've lent you their voices? Something that everyone doesn't expect is how intimate it is. Just the fact that it's very hard sometimes to have ownership over a vocal expression because voices are like smoke, they're ephemeral. They can kind of like leave us. But individuals that have spent years and years working on a cause or trying to fight for an idea or highlighting something important to them to now finally be able to have that embodied in something that can have ownership and for it to be uh, become a world-class piece of digital kind of art is, uh, is a new experience. And many parts of the project uh, aspects maybe pre-existing like a voice or like creative technology but we found a brand new way to connect those dots and we find that there is a, a deeply emotional reaction which is something that um, people, isn't always expected with digital projects. People are moved to actually see their own voice is that what you Ma Massively so I think it's it's something that can evoke a sense of presentness and I think we've all had it when something around us has encouraged us to be still and to actually highlight highlight something that we can miss and I think that can evoke a huge emotional reaction. The artist Harry Yef 
I hope this podcast has given you a flavour of what's coming up on day three. We'll be back tomorrow for the fourth and final day at Davos 2022. Subscribe to Radio Davos to make sure you get that and leave us a rating or review and join us at the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with my co-host, Shireen Barn. Sound engineering was by Juan Toron, editing was by Jerry Johansson and studio production by Connor Smith. Thanks for listening. Join us again tomorrow for the last day at Davos 2022 on Radio Davos.